0: Welcome to episode 89 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey brother.
0: Hey brother. Great news, Tony.
1: Let's do this. What do we what do we got?
0: So the Two Thieves podcast has joined. The Reform Podcasting Network
1: Oh man, you're so excited You can't even say the name of the network
0: I couldn't even remember <laughs> it for a second Because I was just so focused on two things. It's
1: like this long-standing joke now at this point That whenever we add a new um, show to the network They have to mispronounce or- the name Or give the wrong website at least once In the process I'm just getting it
0: out of the way for us
1: Yeah, exactly So we never did that when we launched Because we were so careful So we have to get it get it done now
0: So, if you go to reformedpodcasts.com, you will find now, along with all these other great collections of podcasts, the Two Thieves Podcast. These are wonderful brothers, and their whole series, which we've talked about a couple of times, going through what is covenant, understanding covenant theology, is on point. Yes. So, this is a great time. If you've never listened to them before, just jump onto reformedpodcasts.com and look them up. You're not going to be disappointed.
1: Yeah, and not only is their series on point but it's on our website. So I went ahead, even though they didn't officially release until this last uh, website, I went ahead and grabbed all of their Covenant Theology episodes and put them up on the website with their permission, of course. And uh, they really are great episodes. It's really a great exploration. And I think um, just a really fine example for all of us who kind of do this sort of Casual public theology thing called podcasting or blogging um, just of what it looks like to wrestle through a theological issue in public with brothers in the faith and not being afraid to kind of approach those topics and let people push on you let people push on the the position you hold um, and be honest, you know, kind of ironically coming after the Derek Webb episode last week. Be honest with what you come across. Be honest with what you find and what what is brought to you from the scripture. So I think that's great. And in addition to uh, that aspect of the Podcasters Society of Reform Podcasters website <laughs> being updated, Jesse and I are very excited that we have now relaunched our website. Uh, it probably doesn't look very different because I use the same theme, but there's a number of creature comforts uh, that have been added to the website. You can look up at the top. Uh, there's a section where it says episodes. You can click on that for all of our episodes. Otherwise, you can uh, drill down into different categories. So there's systematic theology, which if you click on that, gives you all of the si- all of the episodes in the systematic theology series we did. But if you click on an individual lochi of the systematic theology, you'll get any episode that we have tagged to be associated with that, even if it wasn't. In there. So if you're looking for resources on pneumatology, for example, you click on that pneumatology section, you're going to get our episodes on uh, pneumatology proper, on the gifts of the spirit, uh, a few other things. So check it out. And in addition to that, this is probably the coolest part. We have now got new Reformed Brotherhood emails. So you can hit We're so fancy. you can hit us up. Uh, you'll we st- we'll still get your emails if you send it to the old Gmail account. But you can hit us up at info at reformbrotherhood.com. Or you can or, or you can email Tony at ReformBrotherhood.com or Jesse at ReformBrotherhood.com. Uh, if for some reason you want to talk to Jesse and not to me, like if you want to plan some sort of Baptist uprising, something like that. <laughs> um, or if you wanna wanna chat Pado Baptism, you can email me. Um, But yeah, use those emails. Um, We love them. We got another question cast coming up soon. So we do always prioritize voicemails, but we're happy to take a look at your emails as well.
0: Yeah, so please feel free to continue to call. Leave a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. Check it out. It'll be great. And that was all you, brother. The website you crushed. It looks fantastic. Thank you. And the whole point of kind of organizing that out is so that we can keep this conversation going. So we hope that as Tony and I are you know, discussing these things, it creates a foil for other conversations, people to get involved. And so you can pass along this to somebody else who you might want to talk about with some kind of theological issue. Now it's all way more organized. Yeah. So you can go out and find the episode that maybe was the most meaningful or might be encouraging or challenging to another brother or sister.
1: Yeah. And we've had lots of requests to sort of get the old show notes backdated and um, especially the question and answer sessions to sort of get the questions up there. So we're working on that. We know that it's hard to kind of search through episodes and all you have is a title, but. Man, it is hard to listen to yourself for like ni- yeah, 90 hours and, and like take notes and catalog the things you've said for 90 hours. It's we just, need an intern, right? We do. We need like Ryan from the office to just like work for us and do our laundry and stuff. <laughs> do our and, laundry. and like tag, tag the website and like write show notes, and whatever. Yeah,
0: okay. Really just Other do duties our laundry. as side.
1: Yes, exactly. That's like the catch-all for a job description. It's the worst
0: thing in the world. It is, yeah. Every job description, like, be able to lift five pounds. Other duties as assigned. Exactly.
1: Song. So, Jesse, what are we talking about tonight?
0: Well, this is. I was going to say like my favorite time of the month, <laughs> but maybe that's weird because <laughs> we it's already did that cast. joke on accident. It is heresy.
1: Cast. It is heresy. Cast.
0: So we're back at it in this little series of looking at heresies that are in the church that continue to pop up through time. And what are we talking about tonight?
1: So, last time we did Heresy Cast we spoke about modalism, which was an error uh, in the category of theology proper. It was a Trinitarian error that led to all sorts of problems. This week, we are talking about uh, Marcionism, which is an error uh, not only in theology proper, it has some elements there, but it also has some errors in terms of uh, kind of understanding the nature of Revelation and particularly understanding the nature of the scriptures. Right on. So... Marcionism was a roughly second century heresy um, Marcion was a man who lived during the second century um, it's it uh, there are some sort of prior heresies or prior movements that sort of push up against it. But Marcion was the main guy um, who kind of promulgated this heresy. And what Marcion taught was complicated, but if you break it all down, what he argued is that the God that we see in the Old Testament is not the same God as who we see in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, we have this kind of evil angry God who's constantly smiting people, um, kind of like the God that Richard Dawkins presents, right? This egomaniac, racist, vile person who thrives on violence. And then we get to the New Testament and we have sort of the loving father of Jesus Christ who, um, you know, sacrifices for his people and doesn't doesn't smite people, doesn't order people to crush babies and all this, all the things that we struggle to explain apologetically in the Old Testament. And because of this division between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, what Marcion did was he, uh, he only accepted, or, or we should say more properly, he rejected books that uh, were all of the Old Testament was rejected. Uh, most of the Gospels were rejected. He held a very modified version of the book of Luke, uh, and he held most of Paul's letters, and he kind of took the proverbial scissors to some of them. And he he made the distinctions based on what seemed Jewish and what didn't. So the more Jewish a book, the less likely that Marcion was going to accept it. So Luke, um, at least at the time, was kind of understood as sort of the Gospel that was oriented towards the outsider, towards the, towards the Gentile, towards the woman. And so Marcion accepted that um, and like i said made some modifications to make it a little bit less jewish in flavor do you have
0: anything to add to that no that's great this for me is like the evergreen heresy because probably if you don't know it even by this name you might already be kind of getting this sense this color that it is very per- pervasive in kind of common evangelicalism yeah because marcion's major distinction or distinctive like you said was his insistence on the Christian gospel as exclusively one of love to the extent that he came to complete rejection of the Old Testament. Like you said, he kind of did a buffet on the New Testament in terms of what he thought corresponded to that thesis that it's all about love. So he did see this really strong fundamental contradiction between law and love and righteousness and grace. And so this is one that I think even well-intentioned believers, we can get some of these kind of like Marcionite tendencies because of this focus on exclusively on love, for instance.
1: Yeah, so just to kind of round that out before we start talking about some of the modern implications of it, um, I'm reading from uh, Christianity at the Crossroads by Michael Kruger. Uh, which was sent to me courtesy of uh, InterVarsity Press. Uh, And it's really just an exploration of theology and history in the second century, which is, uh, it's phenomenal. But he writes of Marcion, he says, Nevertheless, across a variety of sources, a general picture begins to emerge. Marcion's theology was shaped by what he regarded as an insurmountable problem with the Old Testament. He viewed the God of the Old Testament as vengeful and wrathful, and viewed the God of Jesus, as described in the writings of Paul, as peaceable, merciful, and loving. The former God was strict and law-centered. The latter was gracious and forgiving. Thus concluded Marcion, the God of the Old Testament, the God that created the physical world, must be a different God from the one who sent Jesus. Or put differently, the God of the Jews is not the God of the Christians. This right. fundamental framework, an antithesis between Old and New Testament, had numerous theological implications for Marcion. So that is from page 117 of Christianity the Crosswords. Crossroads. Christianity the Crosswords. Marcion, <laughs> he's doing those crosswords. Five down sub- was Sabellianism.
0: Yeah, so he had, in my opinion, he had this really kind of revisionist view of Christianity. Right. And he just re- completely recast God. So he had to negate, of course, the entire Old Testament, which you said. He embraced this really weird truncated view version of Luke's gospel, and then he basically selectively edited versions of Paul's epistles. But he also created a Christianity that he ultimately wanted. So he had this, a God of goodness devoid of loving justice, a message of inspiring moral and ethical improvement... And a Bible that basically did away with all the uncomfortable parts about God's wrath and hell. Exactly. So some of that sounds like eerily familiar, which is why I think this is evergreen. It's like everybody's favorite heresy because we're prone to fall into some of the same pitfalls. But to me, Marcionism is is straight antinomian. It's idealistic about human potential. It's pretty much devoid of dogma and rules. Right. So, but to your point, I think with where you wanted to go with this conversation, it would be, we would be at fault. To think that contemporary versions of the Marcion error do not have to posit two ontologically distinct divine beings to fall into right. heresy. So even though based on what you just said, he he did split the difference here and say there's one God of the Old Testament, one God of the New Testament, most Christians would probably not say, Well, that's not what I'm saying. Right. But you can fall into a Marcion error in a different way by not just making that positing that there's two ontologically different beings, right?
1: Yeah, you definitely can. And I think before we we move on that line of thought, it bears saying that um, you will read in some treatments of the second century and the second century heresies that Marcion was the first person to actually collect like a canon of scripture. He was the first person to define boundaries around what scripture was. And so in those articulations of the historical account, he's painted as kind of the conservative who wants to put boundaries around things. And the Orthodox camp is painted as kind of the liberals who want to expand or constrict those boundaries, in this case, expand them, and want to depart from kind of this tradition that Marcion is is in line with. But in reality, and Kruger makes the argument very persuasively, it's exactly the opposite, right? The church has an established body of literature that it considers to be god's holy inerrant and inspired word and we don't have lists necessarily we do have some some good documentation that you know reveals what documents they were using but we don't have any formal um, explicit lists until the, the fourth century but we do have marcion himself saying that he removed documents from the the accepted uh, scriptures. He, he was self-consciously removing documents from an, an established body of literature. So that, that argument that's made by people like F.C. Bauer and Bart Ehrman and, and Elaine Peggles um, it's exactly the opposite of what was going on where we have a, a primarily predominantly conservative and and i mean that in sort of the classic sense in that they want to conserve the traditions that are handed down to them we have a, a predominantly conservative movement in christianity that that accepts these traditions in the form of the written scriptures that was handed down to them from the time of the apostles which was only a generation or two, or two earlier and we have marcion who wants to eliminate from those the things that he finds to be morally repugnant or morally unacceptable and so where i think any of our listeners who are familiar with kind of the development of doctrine or just look around at the state of christianity around them recognize that this is the exact same fundamental movement that's happening in the mainline denominations right we start off with a body of tradition um, most specifically incorporated in the scripture but also other way you know other places we have you know. A lot of the most liberal traditions that are out there right now, the most liberal denominations, started as offshoots of confes- of the confessional heritage, confessional Lutherans, confessional Reformed, and confessional Baptists, and also confessional Methodists. And so they they, they their morality, their perceptions of the world are changing, and rather than conform their morality and their, their worldview to the tradition that's been handed down to them, which is what a conservative mindset does— they take that and instead they they mutilate and they modify the tradition in order to suit their new worldviews. So that's right. the same fundamental error that Mar- Marcion was making. And we don't have, as far as I know, I, we don't have any liberal denominations that are straight up advocating taking books out of the Bible. But what they do is they just simply ignore them or they, they modify what they mean in a way that is effectively removing them from the body of, of scripture.
0: Right. It's the same error. So this is why it's something that I think continues to pop up. What's that saying? Like there's no new theology, only old heresy.
1: Exactly. There's nothing new under the sun.
0: No, there isn't. And so that's why it's important, I think, give it a label and talk about what it is, because by labeling it, we can then dissect it and understand it better. You know, we keep saying this all, all the time, but the reason why we do this type of conversation is because just like if you work in an industry where you have to be aware, even if you just accept currency, of what's fake, the best way to figure out what's fake is not to focus on perhaps every single little type of manifestation of counterfeit, but to figure out what does the real thing look like? What does it feel like? And so by talking, talking about this in kind of relief, we're trying to focus on, even if we have subtle tendencies, where we are falling away from what is real. Right. We want to get to what is real and then everything else should be really, we could be able to draw out or discern what the counterfeit is.
1: Yeah. And another implication that we see in modern Christianity is this sort of disconnect between um, the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. So I remember the first time that I ever encountered it was in reading Greg Boyd, who, uh, yeah, for sure. who wouldn't articulate, as you say, an, an, ontolo- an actual ontologically different God. He wouldn't articulate that God, that there were multiple instances of divine nature. That were separate from each other, but he does sort of postulate. um, You know, he does. He he kind of denies the idea that he's a process theologian, which is the idea that God develops over time in in response to his creation. But as an open theist, he is having to say that God reacts over time and in time and and constrained by time to his creation. And so, as God has to react to to people. To, to the errors and the sins of humans, he, he acted fundamentally different in the Old Testament than he does in the New. So in the Old right. Testament, he did respond in wrath. He did respond in violence. He did respond in anger. And in the New Testament, instead, he responds in mercy and grace in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, so Greg Boyd and people in that line of thinking, they don't postulate a different God, but that God is different in the New Testament. And when you're talking, when you're talking about theology proper— that's a hair breadth apart. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like those things are really all that similar, but in terms of talking about the eternal God, who was for all eternity past and then all of a sudden has changed in, you know, 2000 years ago and is sort of fundamentally different. You might as well be saying that there is a brand new God who never existed before because God is his attributes. So if God was wrathful in the old Testament and he's merciful in the new Testament, then the God of the old Testament is not the same God. Even if they're the same person or being, it would be kind of like, um, in a sense, when someone has like an amnesia episode or a fugue and they, their personality radically changes, um, in a sense, they're a different person. You know, they're the same physical body, they're the same physical arrangement of atoms, but their personality and sometimes even their identity is so different that it, it almost would be accurate to say that they're a different person. And the only right. reason it wouldn't be is because in in creatures, our attributes are not the same as our essence. Where in God, God, all that is in God is God. And so, if that personality change, that that radical flip of a switch between the old and new testament happens, then then all that is in God is different than all that was in God. So we might as well have a new God entirely.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I see that a lot in terms of how many, many denominations, some of us you know, individually focus on making God's love the dominant expression of his character. Yeah. And that's really well-intentioned, but this is something we have talked about in terms of the simplicity of God. Then we get confused because in terms of our, com- our makeup, we are component people. So we're the sum of many parts. And when we think about our emotions, our emotional responses they are different and they are varied and they're interconnected, but not the same. And so we this is where we get in the problem of saying, well, we look at God in the Old Testament and he was like X and in the New Testament, he's like Y. And so this can't be the same things. It's a different God. And this problem of the emphasis on God's love to the exclusion of everything else has become something of a commonplace. Yeah, and I think many Christians are really well-intentioned about this. They want to express that God has got a love, but his simplicity demands that his love is his justice, is his wrath, is his righteousness. Right, And I see this come out all the time in the collapse of the pragmatic theological outworkings of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, I mean, You know what I'm talking about? So like, we'll get into conversations with folks or I'll have conversations with brothers and sisters about what that means. And if you have a Marcionite bent, you will end up saying something like, well, I think penal substitutionary atonement is essentially cosmic child abuse. Right. That that for me is exactly what we're talking about here. That's like right. a marker of we've kind of fallen off here because if you really truly believe in penal substitutionary atonement, then that propitiation is made necessary like the God man is only required if God is both loving and wrathful altogether, all at once. Right. If not why why do we need the God man to come? So To your point about seeing this kind of take place across a varied landscape of evangelicalism, I think the exclusion of any one of God's characteristics is potentially dangerous. But with his love in particular, I think that can be really destructive, actually, because love without accountability is not really love. Right. I mean, can you get down with that? Am I making too much a big deal of it?
1: No, you're not. And that's the primary the way that we see it. But we have to be careful because not only if we exclude one or, or more of his attributes, but if we elevate one or more of his attributes. Exactly. Into you know, there's that famous clip, um, and and this is no disrespect to the late Dr. Sproul, but there's that famous clip where he talks about, and I think that the two thieves just, just changed their new intro music, so it highlights this. He talks about how God in the, in the Old Testament is never— He's not just called holy, he's not just called holy holy, he's called holy holy holy. And he uses that that threefold repetition to say there's nowhere else that an attribute of God is elevated to the threefold like that. And so the holiness of God is the central attribute of God. It's this it's the central spo- uh, hub that all the other spokes turn around. And pache, which is just a way to say I respectfully disagree, if you ever see that in in writing, pache sprawl um he i don't think he's right on that and it's it's funny because the the guys over at according to christ are doing this great series called evenings with burkoff and their last episode was this on the simplicity of god and burkoff puts it a little less forceful than i might but he says it's doubtful that we should look at god's justice or holiness as the primary attribute and he, he right. emphasized that we have to hold all of these attributes in not intention, in, in concert with each other. We can't yes, exactly. we can't pull one out and say this one's more important. And also just in, in reference to the holy 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 thing, you know, Psalm 137 or whatever it is I think that I was reading today emphasizes that his steadfast love endures forever, like thirty-seven times. So if we really want to talk about it, you can make the same argument about God's love being central because it's emphasized 36 times or 37 times or whatever it is right. in that psalm. And so we have to be really careful because we can very quickly turn and make the same mistake. And usually in response to the, the God is love error, the God is only love error, or God is primarily love error. And, and all of a sudden we've become God is only wrath or God is only justice. And and the same way that love that's not accountable is not love, justice that is not constrained or justice and mercy that is not constrained and guided by love. It turns into vindictiveness, and so that's right. that's where we run into the problem, and that's where Marcion and others who follow his error get flipped around is they look at the God of the, their God of the Old Testament and say this is a God devoid of love, and so the justice we see in the Old Testament is not just justice, but it's vindictive justice. It's it's raw, pure retribution, which is something exactly. that they would say is unbecoming of a God who is love, and so there must be a different God in the New Testament. And that's the same error that we see modern day liberals, modern day kind of progressives and well, a lot of well-meaning evangelicals make.
0: Right. Some of that I think is because we just cannot conceive of what it means for God to be simple because it even almost seems like a contradictory statement because we understand that we must be more complex in his thoughts than us. And that's true. I mean, the scriptures make that clear. But at the same time, when we, I like what you said about elevation, because when we're experiencing something, we tend to have a hierarchy of emotional responses and one gets elevated generally. Right. It's rare that you hold like two in parity. Like obviously you're probably not calm and anxious at the same time Right, most of the time. You can't be angry and happy usually at the same time. So we look at these accounts and we say, well, in the Old Testament, God is predominantly Wrathful, it looks like in the New Testament, it seems like it's all happy except for you have right. Jesus flipping over tables and
1: yeah, and slaughtering his enemies so the blood flows up to the right. bridle of the horse. People just right. ignore those passages exactly like Marcionism,
0: yeah, exactly. So, I you know what I feel like this is going. Is I just realized one for these casts, we definitely need like a wheel of heresy that we can spin. I feel like that would elevate yeah. our show, it probably a little bit. would, yeah. Second, I, we were about dangerously close to being like, if you ever thought there were two ontological beings. You might be a Marcy (laughs) Knight. Yeah, there you go. That's going like a whole list. But there are many people who would say, even when we present the gospel, that starting with sin, that's the wrong place to start. Right. Because that's not a loving place. And I get that argument to an extent, but that's also like saying, if your child is running out in the street to collect a ball that's gotten away from them, and they're about to be struck by a car, the wrong place to start is to say, get out of the way. You should start by saying, I love you a lot. And you should also get out of the way of that vehicle. So there's like really practical implications to understanding this kind of Marcion concept. And it just, it just bleeds over. So like, are there other places in your mind besides like elevating a characteristic of God, for instance, is love. Are there other places where you kind of see this green right now?
1: Oh yeah. I'm going to make everybody angry right now. (laughs) Are you ready for this? I just, I literally just rolled up my sleeves. I've been waiting for this all week. So there are, um, movements, large movements within Christianity that try to divvy up the Bible into, um, we'll call them dispensations, wink, wink, uh, that different parts of scripture are for different people. And although the other parts of scripture are maybe educational or insightful for us, they're not really for us. So right. um, classic dispensationalism, right? I remember when I lived in Minneapolis, I heard this show and it was called Rightly Dividing the Word of God. I was like, well, that sounds good. It's a quote from scripture. But then I noticed that what he was saying is that the the letters of Paul was all that there was for the New Testament church. And so classic dispensationalists would even say things like the Old Testament is for the Jews and the um, the Gospels... And maybe Acts was for the first century church, for the dispensation of the church. And now that we're in the the dispensation of the spirit, now that we're there, you have the the Pauline epistles primarily, and maybe the Catholic epistles, and maybe the book of Revelation. But that's probably actually for a yet-to-come dispensation. And so we have this, this movement in classical dispensationalism that still holds some weight in modern dispensationalism. They probably wouldn't draw those lines as firmly, but... Anytime we have a movement that's creating kind of a canon within a canon that views certain parts of Scripture as more authoritative, right? Maybe you have people who will say to you, well, I'm really just concerned with what the red letters say. Or they say, well, yeah, that's what Paul teaches, but this came out of the mouth of Jesus. Right. Right. So we have this, there's these movements within modern Christianity that we don't think of as Marcionism, and they're not Marcionism properly speaking, but they share this affinity with Marcion that they want to say that a certain part of the Bible is not applicable for the church anymore, right? New covenant theology, right? People like Tom Schreiner, um, Steve Wellum, who also many of them are dispensationalists. Um, and so they, they kind of skirt that line. They want to be called progressive, profess, progressive covenantalists, things like that. But they skirt that line and they want to say that, well, the Old Testament law that was for the Jews, and that was for someone else. The new law of Christ is the law of love, and so that's for us. So although the Ten Commandments provides us with some helpful moral guidelines, the real law that we need to follow, the real law that we're bound by, is the new law, the new covenant law of love your neighbor as yourself, love the your Lord your God. It's the law of love a lot of times it's called. So we have right. these, these movements that share a lot of affinity that end up in a place of kind of practical Marcionism. Um, what do you think about that?
0: I totally agree. I mean, this is what you're talking about is great because most of the time we think we can discern heresy because it smacks us right in the face or like throat punches us, but this is very subtle. So your example before about even kind of a subtle corporate or personal neglect of the Old Testament. So for example, there's just a tendency, and I think in the basic average Christian's life to neglect the Old Testament in our theological reflections and our devotional considerations. That's just kind of a bias we have. And I'm all for understanding that the, the old has gone and the new has come in terms of the covenant. But when we look at the life of Jesus, and Mark Jones is so on point with this in his book, Knowing Christ, he talks about Jesus reading the scriptures to, in a sense, come into obedience and to understand his role with the right. Father, Yeah, that even Jesus himself is, is immersed in the Old Testament as a way of understanding God's rule for life, his own life, which right. of course was going to be the life that was given for all of us. So that neglect is really common. And some people are more outspoken about that than others. But I think there's always a tendency to say, well, let's see what Jesus has to say about this because he gets the final word. And that's true. But I think Jesus is also thinking, well, this was my scripture as well. This was my rule of life. And so I I can't see how we can even throw away that part or parcel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right on. And and there's a more subtle form of this, too. And I think, you know, you and I, even sometimes listening back to all episodes, we sort of subtly fall into this, that yeah, when we when we're talking about a theological point, you know, we'll explain what Paul says, we'll pull some stuff from the Old Testament, and then we'll say, and this is what Jesus says about it.
0: Exactly. Well,
1: it's good to say, like, yes, what Jesus says is important, but... If you want to get real technical, we don't have any of the actual direct words of Christ. Christ didn't write anything down. So all of the words that we read in the gospel that are, quote, the words of Christ are actually the, the words of an apostle or an ap- associate of an apostle who is either recalling or being told these things. And the nobody makes any, um, hardly anybody makes any pretenses that these are the exact verbatim words of Christ. Many of them probably are. It was an oral tradition, so they were much more apt to pass down um, sayings in a verbatim fashion. But we see in the gospels that in one gospel the, the account is told, and in another gospel the uh, you know the account is told, and the words don't match up. Um, and if if we hold to too strict of a perspective on that, then we've now created a situation where there's contra- you know uh, contradictions in the Bible. So it's very easy to subtly fall into this trap of parceling up the Old Testament. And you know what I found a lot of times too is another subtle form it takes is there's a lot of Christians who just don't know what to do with the Old Testament. Right. Right. So you you get um, you get instances where the Old Testament sort of becomes like this foreign land and we sort of we're, we're like tourists in the Old Testament where we drop in and we tell a Bible story and then we, we insert ourselves into that story and we try to moralize it and draw moral principles out of a historical account
0: right you mean I'm, I'm not David you're not David and, David, and Goliath right?
1: you're not David you're not David <laughs> So, okay, (laughs) I've been real. That's some inside baseball right there. Real uh, quick divergent uh, moment. There's this new podcast called uh, The Lightest Form of Flogging. Have you heard of this podcast? No. So it's by a guy named Jim Briggs and David, I think it's McCookie, McCookie. I I never get the name right. But um, they talked in one of their episodes about Matt Chandler's famous statement that he's kind of like an orphan in the reformed camp because he's he's a reformed charismatic. So on their latest episode, they had this like fake promo for um, Matt Chandler's orphanage for theological orphans or Matt Chandler's house for (laughs) theological orphans. And David did this absolutely spot on impersonation of matt chandler like it was it was close enough that i actually had to think for a second if maybe they somehow got matt chandler to do this
0: that's impressive it was
1: it was so so good and ashley's been listening to the village uh sermon feed kind of just another way to get some more like uh some more sermons in her ears and stuff and she i played it to her and she was laughing so hard but it that was really funny, funny.
0: i forgot yeah, where that, we were at yeah, Well. that's I believe we're talking about how the church can be practically Marcion sometimes. Here's right, another right. place where I'd see it, it pop up. And I'm kind, I'm kind of sensitive to this, honestly, but this came to me by way of uh, Carl Truman. He wrote an article about this. And this is we should just before I say this, be prepared to cut to everybody that participates in exclusive Sodomy who's about to celebrate the words I'm about to say. <laughs> but um the challenge was are we practically Martian sometimes? in singing or like gathered worship through singing. Right. I mean, do our churches take the Old Testament seriously enough when it comes to singing? And i would be really challenged by that because yeah. you know, given the overwhelming use of psalms as central part to the gathered worship in the first four centuries, the absolute importance given to psalmony for the first two centuries of the post-Reformation yeah. Reformed churches, and the fact the book of Psalms is literally the only hymn book which can claim to be universal in its acceptance by the whole Christendom, do we sing enough from the Psalms? And not, yeah. not that we have to like sing word for word, but I think the question that's been going through our mind is, are we taking the concepts, some of the words, the verbiage, the emotions, and bringing them into our music, including things like lamentation, which like, yeah. we don't, I don't sing a lot of lamentation, but a lot of the Psalms are just honest crying out to God. So yeah. there's a question there in our singing. Like, There's nothing wrong with having contemporary music, I don't think. And there's nothing wrong with having expressions that come from the Psalms. I just don't know if maybe I'm trying to reinvent the wheel too much. And really, I should be driven back to what the Psalms give me as an expression of singing in worship, as opposed to always looking to the outside for something new or different. So I don't know if that's a place you've ever thought about, but I do see there's some overlap there with Marcion.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, there's sometimes you hear people who say something like, um, well, you know, we're New Testament Christians. And I want to be like, Well, so you're, you what, like you're not Old Testament Christians because the first, the first century of Christianity, they were Old Testament Christians. They were just Old Testament Christians. There was, there was no New Testament scriptures at that point. So uh, we have to, you know, we have to be careful because it's so easy, as we've said so many times to subtly fall into this, but you know what else is easy to do? To run into it face first, like you were running into a wall (laughs) without thinking about it. Or maybe you were thinking about it. Right.
0: Right. I so, think I know where you're going with this.
1: So this past, uh, maybe two Sundays ago, um, and, and Jesse and I had planned out to talk about Marcionism before we started the Heresy Cast. We knew we were going to do modalism first, uh, and we knew we were going to do that about two weeks before we did it. So we're about seven weeks after we decided to do this series on heresy, and we knew we were going to talk about Marcionism. And then Andy Stanley... From North Point Church in in uh, near Georgia, or near Atlanta, Georgia, just straight out became a Marcion. Just served it up. I mean, he he has always been. I mean, Andy Stanley comes from a very dispensational background. Like you know, Charles Stanley's his father, who's a major figure in dispensationalism. He Andy Stanley tows that party line like a champ. Um, but he just straight up disregarded the old Testament as not the Bible. And so now, but at this point he's done all sorts of backpedaling, right? He's been called to the floor on it. And he said, well, you guys just didn't understand me. If you go back and read the first two, listen to the first two episodes, he calls his sermons episodes, which I just want to punch him in the sanctified face for that, because they're sermons, they're not episodes. But just to give you a smattering, because, um, I went back and I subjected myself to 90 minutes or so of these sermons i listened to all three of them and i listened to them three times so I, I listened to 90 minutes of this sermon three times to get these quotes and to make sure that i was representing him so these are all quotes from the third one which that's called aftermath and right. what it is is it's the aftermath of the old testament like that's what the whole sermon series is about is getting past the old testament so at four minutes and 40 seconds he says And he's referring to the previous two sermons. He says, quote, We discovered that when the church launched, that the foundation of the faith of the early Christians was not a book. They didn't have one. It wasn't the Bible. There wasn't one. It wasn't the old covenant or what we call the Old Testament or what they call the law and the prophets, because they had nothing to that. uh, You know, it didn't tell the story of Jesus. And, And I'm including those stutterings because I think it's important. And that's an end of the quote, obviously. I think he was going to say it had nothing to do with them. Right. And then he caught himself and said, well, it didn't tell the story of Jesus. He might have been saying it had nothing to do with Jesus, which is even worse than saying it had nothing to do with the first century uh, Christians. Then, and this is, this is a representative sample, but there were many more instances. Uh, at 22 minutes and 45 seconds, it is time that us Jews, he's speaking in uh, Peter's voice. He says, it's time that us Jews accept the fact uh, that God has done what he was going to do with us, and now he's doing something for the world, and we need to be a part of it, even though that means letting go of and setting aside the traditions, the scripture that we grew up with. So he's he's expositing, if you can even call it that, he's expositing Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Uh, right. Just after that, 23 minutes, 45 seconds, then Peter is done and James stands up and reminds them, quote, "Gentlemen, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Our prophets predicted this. Our prophets foretold of a time where they would be a, where there would be a new covenant. Our prophets told us that Israel was established to be a light to the Gentiles. We should have seen this coming." And I quote that because I want to say to him, I want to grab him by the shoulders and shake him and go, what prophets do you think James is referring to? The canonical prophets of the Old Testament. Right. Right. Going on. Uh, This is James, the brother of Jesus we're talking about. This is Peter, Jesus's follower. There are guys that are right close to the action. We should take their word for what we need to do as it relates to their scriptures. Notice the contrast. Not our scriptures, their scriptures. And this is the proverbial money shot that makes me want to just cry myself to sleep. Uh, Thirty-two minutes and thirty seconds. He says the old covenant, the old uh, the old covenant, or the old covenant law of Moses was not the go-to source regarding sexual behavior in the church. More importantly, <laughs> chuckle. He chuckles and perhaps more disturbingly or offensively, the Old Testament, or the Law and the Prophets as they called it, was not going to be the go-to source for any behavior in the church. Now, to make this point, because it is so important, I originally in my notes was going to put up on the screen here, in other words, uh, in other words, that means thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. He, he goes on this sort of like excursus about why he didn't do that because he knew someone was going to take a picture and it was going to define his life, which if you have to put that caveat there and it changes your behavior, maybe you need to rethink it in the first place.
0: Yeah, cut it out.
1: But he goes on and says, I want you to hear me say this. Here is what the Jerusalem council was saying to the Gentiles. Quote, you are not accountable to the 10 commandments. You're not accountable to the Jewish law. We are done with that. God has done something new. Besides, he would say to them and he would say to you, you shall not obey the Ten Commandments because those are not your commandments. Yours are better, and yours are far less complicated, but they are far more demanding. So there I, I i didn't quote all of them, but I counted it. And no less than five times does he say during the sermon that the early Christians did not develop their theology on the basis of a Bible because they didn't have a Bible, because the Old Testament wasn't their Bible. So. Right. He's trying to say, well, I never said the Old Testament isn't scripture. I believe the Old Testament is scripture. I believe it's inspired. But he's saying explicitly that for Christians, even the first century Jewish Christians, that that was not their Bible because that was the Jewish Bible, not the Old, the New Testament, not the the Christian Bible.
0: Right, but that's like a definition without distinction. Exactly, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm sure you'd feel the same way. So, if the Orthodox view is the Ten Commandments are our eternal, contemporary; they're not a time bound, culturally limited expression of a particular set of some forensic moral behaviors that are relevant just to a single society. And this is what gets me. I, I don't understand why we can't see this. But they're an expression of God's character that is going exactly. to be fully revealed in Jesus the Messiah. So it's like getting caught up in all these rules and regulations without seeing that God is always intended to communicate his heart behind these precepts so he might understand him. Now, I can be like maybe a little bit empathetic with Stanley if like what he's trying to get at is that the perceived violence and legalism of the Old Testament shouldn't prevent us from coming to Jesus. But this is like a bridge too far to cross. Yeah, it, it, He's really drawing too hard a line here. And my issue is, I want to get into this with the because you're – Basically, your impression of his chuckling was the best thing I've heard all day. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the, how, how like he's redefining in this revisionism he's participating in, especially when it comes to his example of like sexual immorality. Yeah, so I think that is a gateway into all kinds of justification, and then pulling the scriptures in to basically say, "No, see, the scripture does support this. It might not have a, in a previous dispensation, but now this is okay because the new rule of law is just love." And love is what our society likes to throw down as the trump card for all kinds of relationships.
1: Yeah. And it's important to note, I love that you brought out that the 10 commandments are the the old Testament moral law, right? The reform of classically recognized the threefold division in the old, in the old covenant law, there's the moral law, which properly speaking, he's not entirely wrong that, that we're not under the covenant of the 10 commandments. And the reason I say that is because the moral law, as it was re um, re given at sinai was for the jewish people but the reason that we're under those commandments is because there is an earlier covenant that we are bound by that includes that same content so the moral law of god which is primarily summarized in the ten commandments is eternal because it reflects god's character and and one of the things that i didn't pull out quotes for is that in this sermon stanley talks about how the God of the Old Testament, and he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily say it that way, but he talks about how God behaved and acted and related to creation in a fundamentally different way. Right? And that's his dispensationalism, dispensationalism coming out. In an earlier dispensation, God had a different set of rules for how people would be saved and a different set of rules for how He would interact with them. Now that we're in the New Testament dispensation, God fundamentally acts differently. The old moral law of the Ten Commandments is no longer in force, and the new moral law, is well what that does is it creates a difference in god's nature and character because that moral law that he is he is promulgating by decree and by fiat is a reflection and an extension of his moral character so not you know one of the things that cropped up as people were assessing this and analyzing it and i could tell who had listened to the sermon and who hadn't based on whether or not they caught this is that Andy Stanley is postulating a fundamental difference in the nature of God between the Old and the New Testament. Exactly. And as we said earlier, when you do that, you might as well have an entirely new God. You might as well say the God of the Bible in the Old Testament is not the same God as the God in the New Testament.
0: Exactly. Thank you for drawing out that link, because I think that's helpful to start with. At one side, the idea that there's the Old and the New Covenant, and they're two totally separate things, and now we live in the New Covenant. And then the second link is, but the covenant expressed in the Old Testament is reflective of God's eternal, unchanging, immutable character. So now if you say, well, they're two separate things, now you're talking about two separate gods. You right. have to go that route. There, there's no way that you can avoid that. So what bothers me so much about that is, well, besides just that, we're start with there. <laughs> yeah. But is that Stanley's using the apostolic decree, like you said in Acts 15, to basically assert that Paul's claim to, or admonishment to the believers there, especially to like avoid immoral behavior, is not predicated or defined by the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, or the Law of Moses. And he's going to redefine then what it means, basically, is that we should just go with treat one another as God and Christ has treated you. And that's a Marcionite perspective. Right. I, mean, yeah. I don't think there's any way around that. So he's using, though, this is what's so crazy. He's using this argument that he's building while at the same time smuggling in what the apostles, I think, are rightly referring to in terms of the Old Testament. So, right. like the rules for Gentile converts that are outlined in Acts 15, those go back to the Old Testament guidelines for Gentile sojourners in Israel. Right. And like Paul's moral instruction elsewhere for the church in Corinth was modeled directly on Deuteronomy's legislation. So, and even Jesus does. We have this connection of it's always referring back. So we have God's character being revealed in the Old Testament in the law of Moses. And then how beautiful that Jesus comes in, in a way, this is not great language, but in a way, he is absorbing the Old Covenant in the New Covenant by fulfilling it. Right. Not, he doesn't eradicate it, but he makes it, I don't know, complete and full. You know what I'm trying to get out there? What am I trying to say?
1: Well, I think, you know, when, when Christ comes, he doesn't abolish the Old Testament he fulfills right. he fulfills the the ceremonial law and he fulfills the civil law and so in that sense as our priest uh, and our king he is the completion of those uh, those aspects of the old testament law and so we are no longer obligated to you know have a king in israel we're no longer obligated to celebrate uh, you know the the ceremonies and the festivals of the old testament because those have fulfilled their purpose they pointed to um, they pointed to the one who would come, the redeemer who would come, right, and so those are those are what we would call positive laws. So there's the moral law that is what it is as an extension and a reflection of God's nature. and then there are positive laws that are added on top of that that are made they're made law by declaration of God, right natural law is is natural law or moral law is moral law because it's woven into the fabric of creation. It's immutable, it's unchangeable. It didn't ever have to be declared. Right. God never had to tell um, God never had to tell Cain not to murder Abel because he he knew it according to nature and he was accountable to it in light of being a part of the creation. But the civil law and the ceremonial law is not abolished, but it's fulfilled. The terms of that contract are fulfilled. Right. I used to sell um, computers at Best Buy and we would sell these extended um, service plan warranty things. And I know you're not a fan of them, but I actually think they can be a good deal. But all that aside, (laughs) we would say, you know, there were certain terms in the contract. And when you had had certain uh, three repairs completed, uh, if there was a fourth problem, we would give you a brand new product. And so at that point, the contract was fulfilled. It wasn't abolished.
0: Right. It's not
1: like we're saying that the contract is no longer in force. What we're saying is that all of the terms of the contract have come to pass. And so the contract is no longer applicable. So right. the ceremonial and the, the civil laws are like that. The moral law cannot be fulfilled in the sense that it can be completed. The same moral law that's in force now that prohibits us from murdering or raping or stealing will be in force forever. It will always be immoral to murder and to rape and to steal. Right. Um, even though we won't have temptation to do it anymore, it's not like God is at some point going to go, all right, well, now that you're all glorified and I don't have to worry about it anymore, it's no longer immoral to murder. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Right. So I think we've kind of already started it, but I want to turn the corner and talk a little bit about how, how do we answer this and how do we know that Marxianism is not true? Are you asking me? Sure. Why don't you, why don't you take a, take a first crack at it?
0: And (laughs) then I've got a couple quotes
1: from Stanley's sermon that I want to point out and sort of explain um, via those quotes, how we refute Marxianism.
0: Okay. Well, so here's the thing. I would say that you know Jesus and Paul are both going to agree that the heart of the law is love and that the whole law can be summed up in the twofold command to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. But it's misleading to not consider that Jesus is bringing real definition and discernment about what real love amounts to right. on the basis of the Old Testament. So the way we refute it is just that, I think first with a proper understanding of proper theology, and, and including the Trinity, understanding what it means for God to be simple and how we understand and interpret his action and interaction with his people. But the first place is that we see a consistency, a cohesiveness in all the teaching of the apostles and in Jesus himself, that the Old Testament wasn't just relevant. It was, in fact, the bread of life for him. It was the word of God. And it was everything that we understand about Jesus, his entire life. You know, I think I've said this before. It's not that he is the key that unlocks the box of the scriptures. He is the box that contains them. Right. And so we need to look at the, the Bible holistically and, and start there. I think we need to, the best way to refute it is to say, well, let's look at the scriptures, the old Testament, as we see Paul, James and others looking at the old Testament first, why don't we start with their perspective? instead right. of superimposing our own? So that's where I would start.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think that's absolutely right on, and that that um, leads into what I wanted to say. Well, so uh, Andy Stanley goes on this sort of excursus in in the beginning of his sermon, where he's talking about the fact that there were Pharisees among uh, there were Pharisee Christians, and not not in an interrogative sense, there were Christians of the Pharisaical party that were among the elders gathered at the the Council of Jerusalem. And he goes on, he goes on this excursus to kind of like uh, to express sort of astonishment at that fact. And he says, quote, what do you think changed the Pharisees mind? The Sermon on the Mount? Uh Uh-uh. The Prodigal Son story? No. The Parable of the Good Samaritan? Nope. They saw him after he had been raised from the dead. And they were like, we were wrong. Because when someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you just go with whatever they say. Now, <laughs> the the irony of this and if if I was uh, not so sure that Andy Stanley is so terribly misguided, I would think he was doing this on purpose to be a troll. That is 100% diametrically the opposite of what Jesus says of right. the future, specifically talking to the Pharisees. Right? So we'll ignore the historical inaccuracies in this sermon which there are many, that no Pharisee saw. Jesus, Right. The original disciples, there weren't Pharisees among them. And it was the followers of Jesus that saw him after the resurrection. Right. Paul gives that long list. It's not like Jesus was appearing to random unbelievers in, you know, in first century Palestine. But when he tells the parable of Lazarus in the, uh, the book of Luke. The whole point of it is for him to predict his coming death and to say, if you don't believe the old Testament, the law and the prophet, which he continually refers to as what they called it. Right. You won't even believe it. If someone comes back from the the dead. Exactly. So we look at this and time and time again, it was actually stunning to me. How many times he uses a passage to point out that the early Christians disregarded the old Testament that within two or three verses was supported by a citation in the old Testament. Right. So Jesus says, Jesus says that if you don't believe the old Testament, then even someone coming back from the dead won't be enough. He says, um, he says that our prophets predicted this. Well, who were the prophets that predicted this? James is quoting old Testament prophecy, right? He says that we should take their word for what we need to as need to do as it relates to their scripture. Well, what did they tell us to do in relation to the scripture? Paul called the Thessalonian or the uh, Berean believers more noble because they examined the scripture. Well, what scripture right. do you think he was talking about? So time and time again, throughout the new Testament, we see the formula it is written or as it was written in almost every instance of that. He's a, it's an appeal to the old Testament to say, this is the old Testament that settles the question, right? Nobody is pointing to, for the most part, to the Sermon on the Mount. There's very little in the rest of the New Testament that is a quotation or an allusion to the Sermon on the Mount, right? We have a couple places in Paul that talks about bearing fruit. We have a part in um, James that uses that same horticultural um, metaphor. We see it scattered throughout the uh, New Testament, but we very, very little of the New Testament. And this is actually part of the reason that people create these canons in a canon. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time quoting the Gospels. There's places here or there. But the New Testament articulation of the faith is a Holy Spirit-driven reflection, not on the words of Jesus, but on the Old Testament itself. Exactly. So by using the New Testament to undercut the Old Testament, Stanley demonstrates that he does not understand the New Testament at all.
0: Right, I agree. And that was even Jesus' prerogative himself, which I have to wonder if Many of the apostles, they gleaned that approach, of course, from the Holy Spirit, but as well through the Holy Spirit by watching how Jesus taught. So even post-resurrection, maybe a good example would be on the road to Emmaus. Exactly. You know, here's Jesus. He is in, well, he's, he's kind of shielded to some extent their eyes from seeing who he really was, but he takes the time to reason with them from the law and the prophets right. about the Savior must come and must be crucified and must die and rise again. And so it's just interesting that that's his approach. And everywhere, I think this extends to like all kind of moral behavior that we find in the Old Testament, not just that which succinctly erupted in in, um, the Ten Commandments. So, you know, even Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians and he's talking about the roles of husbands and wives to, to love each other and to serve one another and to be submissive, and he talks about slaves and owners, when he gets to children... The first thing he says is obey your parents because this is the first commandment that came with a promise. So right. you always find this reference back to the Old Testament. Again, is this the, there's this beautiful crescendo or this wave that's rolling through time where what God is doing is using what he's given us before in his character to demonstrate more of his character. And then I don't see Jesus saying, you know, love one another as, you know, God has loved you in Christ. As a way to do away with all that, all he's doing is bringing like additional clarity. If if anything, he takes the Ten Commandments, as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, and he brings in more nuance, more depth of moral character right. that I see adding to the Ten Commandments in a way that clarifies and perhaps elevates the responsibility for behavior, but in a way that's spirit-filled and not that's just throwing it out. And your idea of like the contractor metaphor, of the contract is a really good example. In Best Buy, like you don't throw out the contract; it gets satisfied exactly. But it's still present. The relationship, everything is still built on that, and you move forward in your behavior based on that. So I think this is where we get into problems with revisionism and redefining what it means to interact as Christians when we say, "Well, Jesus is our religion," right? And there's like some small amount of truth to that, or Jesus is our doctrine, and and there's no like sense of a like, complete falsity with that. But it is a misrepresentation, and Andy Stanley here is clearly, I think, misrepresenting this stuff. And this is going to get taken all over the place and used for all kinds of justifications for really strange outworkings yeah. of what Christian moral behavior should look like.
1: Yeah. And and I think for me, one of the most striking um, examples in the New Testament, and I haven't seen this argument made um, explicitly anywhere, and I know that in in the actual Marcion um, dispute, which, which I heard I I read, I think it was James White was saying there are more books that are written against Marcion yes, than anyone yeah. else in the in the early church. So everybody and their mother had a, a book that was called everybody a, a Contra a Right, Contra Marcion. But I bring that up to say that the book of Revelation, which was not universally regarded as scripture in the second century. Um, there's good evidence to tell us that there was a large portion of the church that was really concerned and confused by the book of Revelation in the second century. But When God wants to give his people assurance for the future and to reveal to them in some sense the nature of the coming Messiah, the nature of the second coming of the Messiah, and what his nature will be in terms of his appearance at the second coming, he doesn't create something out of whole cloth. What he does is he basically throws all of the Old Testament prophets, primarily Daniel, primarily um, Ezekiel, and you know some other stuff out of some of the minor prophets. He throws it in a blender, spins it up, and what comes out is the book of Revelation. So rather than giving us a brand new revelation of the future for our, for our people, he gives us a revelation of what our future has to hold for us by pointing us to the faithfulness that he's had in the past as expressed in the prophets. So, so the hope of Israel, the promise of God to the people of Israel in the Old Testament through the prophets is the very same promise that we have received as Christians to be fulfilled in Christ in eternity right. future. Right? The, the plan of eternity past was worked out in the time of Israel in the prophets and will be fulfilled consummately in eternity future. And he uses the language of the Old Testament to assure us of that. So this whole thing that that Andy and I'll say it, Andy Stanley has espoused almost directly the Marcian heresy. So I I very rarely will call someone flat out a heretic unless they are actually teaching the same thing as something that has been declared heresy by the church. And now Andy Stanley is saying, you guys misunderstood me. Let me clarify. I look forward to that clarification. And I hope that he clarifies in such a way that reassures us of his orthodoxy. But this sermon was Marcionite heretical garbage. It was absolute trash. And this kind of theology will send people straight to hell. Right? That is dangerous, dangerous stuff. So I wouldn't even say go listen to the sermon. If you want to to verify what I'm saying, then then have at it. We'll put the link in our show notes. There is nothing you will glean from this that is edifying because it is not a Christian sermon. You will get more from listening to a rabbi teach on the Old Testament than you will about listening to Andy Stanley teach on the New Testament in this instance. So I know that I'm saying that strongly, and and I can't I can't say it stronger than that. But if I could, I would.
0: Well, heresy is a serious matter. I mean, we use that word very flippantly generally in our conversations, but. Here we're talking about something that really does make a difference and being wrong ha- wrong has repercussions. Right, And he's just well outside the stream of orthodoxy on this. And yep. so there's good reason, even if you don't listen to those sermons, I would say it's good to do a little self-reflection in your own life about how you understand what you actually know about the Old Testament and how you understand it to be relevant in your current Christian walk. Because yeah. to me, the beauty of the old covenant that we miss when we come into Stanley's purview of it is that we don't realize that when we read all of the scripture, we are under that same moral condemnation no matter where we are in history. And what a blessing that now through Jesus Christ that that has been satisfied to such a way that now where, like Paul says, the law was death and only death. Now it is life because we're able to take those moral responsibilities, the accountability that is on our shoulders, and we can obey by the power of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus Christ has done to satisfy yeah. it. And when you strip that out of the gospel message, you take a large chunk away that is our joy and our security yeah. in this life. So it's, he's doing a disservice because I think, again, what he's maybe he's trying to emphasize, maybe in really just kind of a shocking way of just throwing out all this really shock and all statements is that Jesus is everything. And I agree with that, but he is, he's principally everything because he has satisfied everything. Right. And so I think we just need to keep that in view at all times. Yeah, that is well said. And I can't add anything to it.
1: So our time is up. We uh, appreciate all of our listeners joining us. We don't ask this often, but it's been about a year and a half since we've had a review on iTunes. So if you get a chance, head over to iTunes, or I suppose it's called Apple Podcasts now. Head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Uh, We appreciate five stars, but we'd rather have your honest feedback. And uh, don't forget to email us at our brand new Reform Brotherhood email address, which is info at com.
0: Is that where people can send their questions to for a question cast? It
1: is. It would be even better if they called us at 607-444-2767. Bros. In order to leave us a voicemail, which we do prioritize. So we got another question cast coming up. Uh, we've had tons of great feedback. People have found those to be really edifying and just to be really... Um, useful to them. Uh, And like we've said, it's useful to us because we don't always think about the things that you want us to think about. So ask us questions. We love to answer them. And uh, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.